Jarvis Yu is back. Jarvis was my first guest on the show, and I'm excited to have him back. In this two-part series, I sit down with him for an in-depth conversation. Now, part one is the Jarvis Year in Review. Jarvis opens up about his accomplishments, goals, and insights for the coming year. He is also brutally honest about where he needs to improve in order to reach the next level. As he plays on the Pro Tour and is a regular on Team Mass Drop East, you may find his observations helpful to your own player development. Part 2 is the Legacy Lands Mini Primer, straight from the Master himself. As one of the most accomplished Lands players on the planet, with two Grand Prix Top 8 finishes including a win and a Top 16 finish, Jarvis is uniquely qualified to speak on this subject. We cover deck basics, matchups, card choices, and more. So definitely give part two a listen if you want to unlock the intricacies of the deck. For Maximum Jarvis, make sure you listen to both parts. I hope that you enjoy listening to this double header series as much as I enjoyed recording it. I do want to do a Lance Q&A with you because you are one of the strongest Lance players in the world. That's not hyperbole. I mean, you've made the elimination rounds of three Grand Prix, right? I think two of them were with Lance. Uh, Richard Import is your favorite Magic card. Actually, do you stream Lance on, on Magic Online? Uh, sometimes I do. There's a lot of really bad matchups online because it's just easier to build a combo deck online. So it's less good. But sometimes I will, you know, once in a while. Is it harder to play it online because of the pace of play? No. Who say that are just bad at the deck. <laughs> it doesn't take... You just have to have a strategy in mind. Okay. So let's just start with the real basics. Jarvis, maybe you can just tell us from your perspective in today's legacy metagame why you think lands is a, is a strong deck to, to play or a strong deck choice. So especially in, if you're doing well in a tournament towards the later rounds, the blue sort of mid-rangey decks rise to the top because of how consistent consistent they are. And Lands is generally very good versus the like grindy blue decks, Grixis Delver, Chuck Pile, you know, even like Shardless, which is not that popular anymore. But all all those sort of slow blue decks are good matchups. So that that's why I think it's a great deck to play. I see. How long does it take to get decent with the deck? Uh, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> it depends on your personality, frankly. Like, if you're willing to do a lot of research and if you have good magic fundamentals, it will take you less long than someone who doesn't play that much magic and just decides they want to go into legacy. There's a lot of non-intuitive things about the deck that you'll only learn by either seeing someone else do them or reading about them. So doing a lot of research, you know, playing matches and really think about what you're doing, it, it's, it's, it's going to take a while, no matter what. But just just see what other people do. Watch coverage, watch replays, you know, read articles. Yeah, you had some good articles there, right? So would you recommend any anything that you've done maybe that uh, would be good to get started with? Uh, I mean, the thing is, a lot of those were time sensitive, but I think a lot of the tricks remain the same. And the overall strategy of the deck probably remains the same in the Channel Fireball articles. So that's probably a good start. 
if I'm somebody who's been playing like Delver and Force of Will for most of my legacy career, just set the expectation for me. Like, how long is it going to take me, and what do I have to, what do I have to practice doing to to actually get better or actually get feel comfortable with playing it in a tournament? I think the entire thing that should drive your trying to learn the deck slash improve the deck is know what you want to do in the end game of matchups. It can be just as simple as make a 20-20, or it can be as complicated as, oh, I have to kill all of their white sources before playing making a 20-20, or I have to punch and fire them to death. Basically, visualize the end game, and then figure out how to get there. That That's how you should learn the deck, I think, because then you'll always have a plan or try to figure out how to advance your plan in a game. So you just mentioned two things, you know, the 2020 and Punishing Fire. How would you describe the primary game plan with the deck, at least in, in game one of, of matchups? A lot of the matchups, the 2020 is the primary game plan, especially versus an opposing combo deck. That's where you most want the 2020 because it's going to kill them in one attack. The Punishing Fire game plan generally comes up when either A, your opponent has a lot of answers to the 2020, or B, you basically just have to kill all of their creatures to win the game. How does your primary game plan, like the 2020, change based on the texture of your draws, like your opening hand, what you start to draw in the first couple of turns, or dredge, versus like what your opponent's playing? I'm wondering if you can give me a few examples here, like what decks kind of force you to switch your game plan, and how do you... How do you see the board and how the matchup plays out and decide, okay, I'm going to go to like Mana Denial or I'm going to go to Punishing Fire or something else? Especially in game one, a lot of decks cannot kill Mirror Age, so it's sort of safer to go for it. But versus decks, like the decks that can kill Mirror Age, you might not want to just push in as quickly as possible. That's generally a bad, bad idea. But sometimes your hand... The only thing you can do profitably by like turn three is make a twenty twenty. So you should just do it, you know. I mean, it sucks if your guy dies, but you know, you can rebuild. Especially I found the most common time to just push in is versus you know, versus a Delver deck in game one. Like they generally can't kill it. And if especially if they have Death Rate Chaman, that shuts off your away from the limbs, so you shouldn't even bother like gloaming a bunch. I'm just wondering, like in game ones of matchups, is there any kind of signal that tells you like you should not go for the 2020? Or is it just a matter of jamming most of the time in the game ones? I would say you jam a large portion of the time, but there are certain matchups where you should almost never jam. Like versus like Planes 8th or Vile, I'll almost never jam the 2020 into them because they have so many ways to kill the token. Metagame wise, is there ever a good time to play this deck versus a bad time? Obviously, for as long as blue forcible decks are around with Delver, what you said is like that's great for for big tournaments, but is there a bad time to play lands versus a good time? I would say if you expect a lot of combo or Blood Moon decks in your metagame, you really should consider playing something else. Um, the combo matchup is not great in game one, and Blood Moon deck is, those are just horrendous. Like, you, you should just find a different deck if you expect a lot of Blood Moon decks. Okay, 
So blood moon decks are very, they're, they're never going to be a majority of the field, but like, what's, what's the calculation on combo decks? Like, is it just right now combo decks are on the downswing or they're being preyed on by other decks? Is it just a good time right now? I think now is a pretty good time, especially in real life. On Magic Online, I think there tends to be a tendency to have slightly more combo than normal. And in real life, if I would say, if you expected like, Blood Moon plus combo to be over 20% in your metagame, you should really consider playing something else. But I generally think in most rational metagames, it's never that high. Okay. Well, so best matchups are Delver and uh, Blue Base decks. Toughest matchups are fast combo decks, right? Right. How do you mitigate your toughest matchups? Like, what do you do in the board for that? So in the sideboard... In general, I'll play the Ancient Tomb. I'll play at least four Sphere of, it, four sphere of Resistance. Sometimes a Thorn, sometimes a Chalice of the Void. So the plan in post-board games is to just try to deploy Lock Piece and play a second Lock Piece and hope it's good enough. And it generally is, because by that point, you can start like wastelanding them or reporting them or ghost scoring them or like just starting to deploy your own combo, the 2020 but like behind a sphere and that that is generally good enough for a lot of the post-board games versus combo got it and how do you fight hate against lands in games two and three like what are the most common forms of hate that people bring against you and then how do you how do you try to fight that if at all great question the most common hate cards are uh surgical extraction for life from the loam uh blood moon for you know turn everything to a mountain, and Diabolic Edict to kill Merrill Age. So, in that order, Blood Moon, do you have four crows and grip? Just hope to draw one. Amusingly, if you play Dark Depths with Blood Moon now, it'll have zero ice counters on it, so when you cross and Blood Moon, it'll just immediately make the Merrill Age. So, that's sort of a slight upgrade, but obviously you still have to kill the Blood Moon to win, you know? It, it's not just, like, free lunch. Oh, they have a blood moon. This is great so, for me. So four pros and grips. That's generally how you do it, right? Yeah. For surgical extraction, you really just need to adjust how you play with your life from the looms. Just try to not get them surgical extraction. And the way to play around that is leaving up a cycling land like Tranquil Thicket or Shelter Thicket, you know, leaving up some mana. So if they try to surgical it, you just cycle your Tranquil Thicket and dredge the one they're targeting. Are you totally screwed if they if they take your life from the loan? No, not at all. Like in ne- in Vegas, I had my dark depths and uh, loams all surgical from a Delver player, and I just punched and fired him twenty times. You know, it's important to remain calm and figure out how you can still win the game. And he was so upset. He's like, "Yeah, I thought I had you completely beat." I'm like, "You're not really solving the problem. You're just..." That's just a delaying tactic. Right. He didn't. He didn't kill you. Like it was just a. Right. Exactly. That, that's the problem. If you just do that and you don't kill me, I just still have all of the time in the world to assemble something else. Yeah. So how important is it for like uh, uh, someone sitting across from you to actually surgical your dark depths? Do you go for the loan first and then the dark depths in that order, or is it contextual? It really depends on their hand. If they have a good clock on me, I might just even considering surgicaling Mazabeth, frankly. You know, I, I, that's why I don't like giving like, oh, you should do this all the time. It's very context dependent. Legacy, that's, that's one of the beauties of legacy. 
the games are so complex, things can change so fast that you really just need to reassess like almost every turn. And what was the third thing that you said people brought in against Diabolic you? Diabolic Edict. The thing is about Diabolic Edict, that's just so much man to leave up that I'll just let them leave up two mana for the rest of the game and then just do it when I feel like I, I can afford it. You know, I, I won't turbo it. Some people play Mistress Factory. Some people play Dryad Arbor. I'm not a huge fan of those plans, you know? Okay, so you basically are just like, you're you're effectively permanently like spell piercing them because they have to leave up two mana or something. Exactly. And and you can port them, you can wasteline them, you can ghost quarters them. So, yeah. How do you decide between Richardson port and and ghost quarter? Because I've been seeing you run ghost quarter. People have been doing that. Like, what what are the pros and cons of each? Just for like the layman who's like getting into lands and when you decide, calculus wise, like to do one or the other or supplement each other. It's funny you ask that. I literally play two and two right now. There, there are reasons to play both. The Rashad and Port thing is better in your bad matchups. And what I mean by that is versus combo, you, especially in a post-board game, is if you play a Sphere and you start porting them, that's good. If you're playing against a deck that has a lot of basic lands and you start ghost scoring them, that's not really as good. Like That's just kind of bad, actually. You know, you have to kill all of their basic lands before your ghost quarter actually does something. So that that that's how uh, port plus sphere. It, it's sort of a coherent game plan post board versus the combo decks. Ghost quarter is great in your good matchups and insane in the mirror because there's only one basic land in the deck. So you got the stone rains. Oh, sorry, the strip mines going. Yeah. Yeah. So you just have eight strip mines versus like a Delver deck. You know. That's just great, obviously. If you are if you knew you were going to play against Dover the entire day, you probably prefer that to Rashawn Port. But what I'm saying is, if you need to sphere someone and they have a lot of basic lands in their deck, trying to ghost score them out is not a particularly effective or coherent strategy. Okay, so it's really based on how many basic lands or combo decks you expect to see in the metagame. Pretty much. Next question. This is almost like a... A budget question, which is probably bad to ask someone like you about, because you should just play the best deck. How essential is Tabernacle in this deck, and what role does it play? Uh, you cannot play the deck without this card. I'm aware it's a really expensive card for people to buy, but it just gets you out of so many weird situations that it, it makes sense with the land disruption package you essentially have. Is like basically your way to kill a true name nemesis in game one. Kill all of their lands and play a tabernacle, and their creatures die. There's no substitute, right? You you have to play one, and a lot of the times you will side it out. It depends on the matchup, but there there are a bunch of matchups where I'll side it out. Same question, but for Drop of Honey, it can answer TNN, true name nemesis, right? So how essential is Drop of Honey in this deck? Can you ever would you ever leave home without it? I would say it's nice to play, but you don't actually have to play it. It, it is one of the best answers to Leobold because it doesn't actually target. That, that's why it can kill a true name as well. It doesn't target. So it's really... We started playing it because Bant Deathblade was on the rise, and it's that's basically the best card versus Bant Deathblade because it kills all of their stupid death rights, no wirex, then starts killing their three drops. I, I like playing one... If you don't want to spend another $500, you don't have to play it. I would play one copy, but not two, like other people play. I think the first copy is really impactful, and the second copy is like, whatever, you know? Because I had a friend who, he was experimenting with 
man, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was abrupt decay where it was like blue for some other weird, weird ass bounce spell. But I don't know he, it didn't sound like that was optimal for, for him. So I'm, I'm guessing drop of honey has got to be the way to go. I'm going to say something about trying to add a color to the deck. The mana base really does not work very well if you try to add a third color. Like, you have so many colorless lands, and you have to start cutting Grove of the Burnwalls. I think Grove is just a great card. Like, it, the mana base does not work. That That is my personal opinion. It's probably the right opinion, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, who can argue with you? Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> What about the uh, the Burning Wish sideboard plan? I know you're not personally running that, but are there any merits to, to running that at all? Have you tried it? I have tried it. The real strength of the plan is that it's easier to play around Surgical because you don't have to... You can just expose your own and just Burning Wish for it later. I think the actual problem with it is you lose sideboard slots. Like, that's a very real cost that, you know... Putting Wish in your deck isn't free. And also, versus, like... A Delver deck, you don't actually want to draw Burning Wishes because it's just so slow. Adding two mana to your other sorceries is not free, especially in Legacy. Yeah, for sure. Are there certain meta games or anything like that that would make you maybe consider Burning Wish or? Yeah, like I mean, it it's Burning Wish is good versus Blood Moon because you can get Whole Breach in game one, so that's like consideration. And the other thing is this surgical thing. And the actual last thing is Devastating Dreams is one of the best cards for death and taxes. Because virtually the same thing happens every game where you get a lot of resources and if you if you Devastating Dreams all of their lands away and have Tabernacle in play, they just can't win. Like, all of their creatures die every single turn. That's the lock. It, it is the lock. It takes a while to set up and it still is cold to free late. So, I don't know. I, I That's why I don't really like it that much. It's a different deck, but it sounds analogous to like uh, uh, show and tell decks running like Cunning Wish and Omniscience and all that jazz because they they want to try to mitigate the bad matchups also against Death and Taxes and yeah I I would not do that if I were I, I think it's okay to play like one Omniscience in those decks but frankly like cards kind of bad you know bad card is bad card right <laughs> it turns you into a three card combo deck like that's just not great. Yeah, most of the time you just want to streamline your your win up your your win con as best as possible, right? Yes. So, any parting words when it comes to lands? I, I've had all the questions here, but uh, are there just certain things like maybe misconceptions that people have about lands, or anything that someone like me who doesn't really understands lands very well, like either playing with it or against it? What are some of the things that come to mind for you now that we've had this brain dump? A few things about lands that I think are not well publicized or understood is graveyard hate in general is way overvalued versus the deck it's very easy for the deck not to need its graveyard whatsoever and just ignore a death right if if the deck folded to turn one death right it would just not be a very good deck you know frankly speaking the second thing is if you are playing lands consider mulligan your hands that have no acceleration it's just so bad to keep a hand that has no acceleration if you can avoid it. If, if the hand's great, but just missing acceleration, then you can probably keep it. But the most common way to lose to your good matchups is just not doing things fast enough, you know? Legacy is a fast format. You can't just sit around forever and just get to do your thing. Like, if you have no acceleration, the fastest you can make Merit Lage is turn four. 
you think a turn five kill is good versus most of the decks? <laughs> I don't like the storm decks have to be faster than that. You know, every deck has to be faster than that. So consider mulling your hands that have no acceleration, and also consider not valuing your graveyard hate as like the end all be all versus them. So if you're playing lands too, like don't get if someone just because they have surgicals in their hand doesn't mean that you've lost or anything like that. No, in fact, like, I got my womb surgical from Kevin King last weekend. I still beat him that match because I drew my Tyros track and killed him with it. <laughs> right. I saw that in your sideboard. That's like one of your favorite cards, right? Yeah, I'm down to one, but that's because I wanted room for other things. But I think the first copy is very good. So, you know. Right. So if I'm playing against you and let's say that the Lance player, maybe he kept a seven or he mulligans a six or five, whatever. And they drop a like a, a turn one mox or mana bond. Like, are all these things like must counters if I'm if I'm playing blue and I have force of will? Uh, complicated question again. Less so for mox, I think. More so for exploration. Mana bond is a big question mark. The mana bond thing is, if they have loam, it's really good to counter the mana bond. If they don't, it's not very good to counter it. <laughs> it's a hard question to answer. I would lean towards not countering Mana Bond or Mox Salmon unless if my hand was perfectly set up to just try to kill them. Okay. I'll try to publish your answer in its entirety so that someone is not going to quote you or me saying like, Jarvis said never counter Mana Bond or something like that. Like it's, it's, it's dependent on what you have and what they have and what you're reading, right? So Yeah, exactly. So Jarvis, thank you so much for your time, giving us the, the Lands 101, and also for just giving us like uh, insight into what's been going on with you. Again, I just want to say I really, really enjoy talking to you. I wish I could have met up with you some, in some event this year, but I went in exactly like zero out of zero uh, uh, magic events this year. So this, week, this year is a buy. Hopefully I can see you next year. Sounds great. Take care, be well, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yep, have a good night. I'm going to go to sleep now. (laughs) All right, take it easy. And that's part two, the Legacy Lands Primer with Jarvis. If you have not had the chance, I encourage you to go back and revisit part one, which is the episode right before this one. It's the Jarvis 2017 Year in Review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.